Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. We need our hands. They're part of what makes us human, you know, opposable thumbs. And when we injure them, it can be bad news. In fact, hand injuries are the second most common injury leading to days without work. And open finger injuries are in the top 10 most common diagnoses ending up in court. In this episode, we're going to explore some general principles of identification and management of hand injuries. And then in part two, we'll dig into some of the more commonly missed or mismanaged ones. When I started reading more on this topic, I soon realized it's a huge one. So we're going to save carpal bone injuries for a future podcast on wrist injuries. Now, part of what inspired me to cover this topic is taking one of Dr. Aaron Seale's casted courses on hands and plastics. And in taking the course, I discovered the very knowledgeable and talented Matt DiStefano, one of the course instructors. He was kind enough to agree to join Dr. Seale and I on this podcast. Welcome, Dr. DiStefano, and welcome, Dr. Seale. Thank you. Thanks. So Dr. DiStefano is new to EM cases. So could you just tell us a little bit about your professional background? Yeah. Thanks for having me here, Anton. So I have worked in Collingwood Emergency Department for almost 20 years and recently wrapped up working there about a year ago. And now in my dotage, work a part-time emerge in some small rural hospitals in Grey Bruce Health. During that time, I've also spent some significant time helping colleagues in the operating room and had a really significant mentor, an orthopedic surgeon who really did truly general community orthopedics from tips of fingers to the tips of toes and uh, learned a lot from him. So we should give him a shout out. That's uh, Dr. John McCall. Right on. I'd like to start off by discussing a general approach, some key things we should ask on history, and then go over an organized approach to the physical exam. So general approach, history, physical. So Dr. Cial, just in sort of general terms, how should we think about hand injuries in emergency medicine? You know, we, we tend to see a lot of different things. We say abdominal pain, headache, chest pain, all kinds of things in the emergency department. Hand injuries deserve special care. They're different than toe injuries, let's say. We're, as you mentioned in your opening, we're very reliant on our hands. So that's a very important thing. And, and the hand is a very complex, intricate structure. The hand in the orthopedic world is similar to like the brain in the nervous system. They're very intricate objects and it doesn't take very much to mess it up when it's such a complex structure. So if someone had a tiny lacunar infarct in their basal ganglia, but it affected their right hand, a very tiny problem can cause a lot of issues for a patient and a lot of dysfunction. And it's quite similar in the hand. A little tiny puncture wound on the flexor side can give you a flexor tenosynovitis. And if it's mismanaged, a patient can have an index finger, their dominant hand that never works normally again. So the same kind of concern for the hand, I think we need to have. I'm not saying every patient with a hand injury is a red flag, but I think it needs to be recognized as a yellow flag. Like you just can't really like let your guard down when you're looking after patients with hand injuries. So not only is it, are we intimately kind of dependent on our hands, not only is it a really complex structure, but evidence, as you mentioned, you know, it's one of the most common reasons for us to make mistakes, for there to be a misdiagnosis, for there to be a lawsuit, there to be a complaint is hand injuries. So clearly there's room to improve. I love that analogy with surgery and brain surgery. So sort of like the general surgeon, sort of the orthopedic surgeon, and the hand surgeon is like the neurosurgeon. <laughs> I want to talk about some general principles to live by when it comes to hand injuries. So Dr. CL beautifully outlined a general way to think about hand injuries. We'll dig into these deeper as we go through the podcast, but what are some key principles when it comes to assessment and management of, of hand injuries in the eMERGE? Sure. I think like all MSK medicine, you want to have some big overriding questions and observations for the patient. And um, in the upper extremity, limb dominance comes to mind. And then vocation and recreation. So what does this person do for work and what do they do for fun? And you know, if you have a, a working person, a blue collar person that's holding tools all day, you may manage a boxer's fracture in that population very differently than someone who's retired and has a non-dominant hand injury. So I think that what they do for work and what they do for recreation, which could include playing a musical instrument, 
that has a big impact on clinical decisions. It's not just about the anatomy. It's not just about the biomechanics. It's not just about the pathology. You really have to know something about the patient attached to the disease. Got it. So Anton, uh, Aaron was talking about how complex the hand is. And I think the adjunct to that is anatomic density. There's a lot going on in a very small space. And I think to the average clinician, that's what becomes challenging about dealing with hand injuries. And the challenge is, frankly, the knowledge of anatomy. And everything you do with a hand starts with knowing the anatomy cold. There's a lot of doubling up. There's a lot of redundancy in your anatomy knowledge in the upper and lower extremity. So you get two for one. If you learn the hand cold, you've also learned the foot. If you learn the forearm, you've learned the lower leg. So I'm selling a little bit the incentive to bone up, ha ha ha, on, on the <laughs> hand a little bit. And so I think practically, look, we're all busy clinicians. And to be honest, every chest pain case, every non-STEMI, every STEMI that I see, do I go and review uncommon coronary anatomy, you know, someone that's uh, RCA dominant? No, I don't do that for every single case, but I do do some reading around cases on a weekly basis. And I would encourage people to do that with a hand. Every hand case you see, open the Googler and at least review some core anatomy. Get a little bit every time. And as the months go by, you'll know the anatomy cold. So I think that's the foundation as a general principle for managing hand injuries in the eMERGE. You just got to know the anatomy. Everything else flows from there. Yeah, I have to admit that I'm opening Google quite often still <laughs> after 20 years of practice. You know, where does the hood go again? And it is very complex. I want to move on to the history. So those were some great general principles about the hand. And when it comes to history, patients with hand injuries, I think most of us would admit that sometimes we kind of gloss over the history a little bit. We see them with a hand injury. A lot of the time, it just seems obvious that they have a hand injury. So we kind of know generally what the diagnosis is. We were kind of thinking three steps ahead already of what we're going to do for them. And sometimes we gloss over the history. And it's so important to take a good history for the hand injury, just like it is with chest pain and every other patient we see in the emergency department. So could you just tell us some of the sort of key historical things that we really should be asking for every patient with a hand injury? Sure. So maybe let's divide that into the common things we see in terms of the mechanism of presentation or the pathology in the emerge. Let's start with lacerations. And the stuff I really want to know is what cut you? How'd you cut yourself? What's the risk of foreign material still in the wound? Ceramics, metal, wood. Is there organic material left in there? So that's sort of the next level, not just to accept that someone has a cut in their hand or that the history is laceration. And then pushing yourself to think cognizant of what the risks are in terms of medical legal liability with hands and feet, frankly, one of the big ones is retained foreign bodies. So someone cuts themselves, I want to know if there's something stuck in there. So I got to tease the story apart a little bit. And then the other thing with lacerations, while we're still on that topic with history is what was their level of function after they cut themselves? Because you're asking yourself the key question with all lacerations, and that is what lies beneath? And that again goes back to anatomy. You have to slide the x-ray under the skin, slide the anatomical diagrams under the skin in your mind's eye and ask what lies beneath. And so if the patient tells you they have a functional problem after the laceration, that's a pretty big hint that you're going to be doing some looking and assuming that they have a tendon injury of significance. So lacerations are one common presentation. The other thing on history that I want to know a lot about is blunt trauma to the hand. And the primary thing there is how much energy went into the tissues. Because I'm always aware of trying desperately not to miss a compartment syndrome in the hand. It's an uncommon presentation to the emergency department, but it's potentially devastating and life-changing. So it's really a limb-threatening injury. And frankly, Anton, it's one of the few true hand emergencies. So how much energy went into the tissues? You know, if they punch something, they're not going to have a compartment syndrome. They just aren't. But if they have a crush injury to their hand, their hand was pinched in mechanical equipment, someone slammed a door on their hand, and they're young, and they're healthy, and they have good muscle and good fascia, they're a setup for a compartment syndrome. And I think the teaching we get to be aware of compartment syndrome in the hand, primarily in the literature, it's about injection injuries. And so we sort of are not as cued to blunt trauma. And so that's always on my mind with the history of blunt trauma. 
asking this question, how much energy went into the system? Mechanism, mechanism, mechanism <laughs> is always important in all of these sorts of injuries. Hand dominance, what the patient's vocation and recreation are, if they're a musician, et cetera. And then I like how you've kind of outlined there really the potential complications of hand injury. So in the history, we should be thinking about the potential complications from the beginning. So think, could this be a foreign body retained? Could this be compartment syndrome? Could this be a high pressure injection injury? Could this be a tendon laceration that's hiding? So that's a, a great way of thinking about taking the history from the beginning before we jump to just looking at the x-ray and making a diagnosis and bandaging them up and sending them along. So that's history. Let's talk about physical now. With the physical too, you know, sometimes we, we gloss over things. And I think it's just like we should approach ECGs in a methodical way and have an approach to interpreting our ECGs so that we don't miss anything. So too with the physical examination of the hand. So Dr. CL, could you go over for us? I mean, maybe we should break it down. There's the nerves, there's the tendons, there's just your general observation of the hand. What are the key aspects of the physical examination of the hand? Going back to sort of big picture stuff with all orthopedic injuries, orthopedic surgeons will often talk about look, feel, move, and then some specialized tests. So I think that is a general framework on which you look at. If you miss any piece of that, then you're missing something potentially. So you need to look. And what do you look at? You know, you look for swelling, you look for deformity, you look for redness, erythema, all kinds of things that you can look at just by examining. And it's really important if you examine like one ankle, you should examine two ankles. If you examine one hand, you should examine both hands. Just see what normal is like for that patient. It's a really important thing to appreciate. Generally, both hands would be equal, both elbows would be equal, unless there was some pre-existing injury. But that's also you tease that out in the history. But it's a really important thing to see what normal's like because obvious abnormalities we can all pick up by looking at just one extremity. Subtle abnormalities, you need to know what normal is like. And there's a lot of patient to patient variability of what normal is like, but there isn't so much intra variability. Like left usually equals right for most patients. So therefore, it's important to examine the opposite side at the same time. Feel is very important. We have to know where it hurts. These are also guide us because if someone's injured in a finger, like we shouldn't order a hand x-ray, we should order a finger x-ray. So where they hurt will guide us in terms of the test that we order. It also guides us in terms of how we look at the x-ray, where is it that we're actually worried about. If you look at a hand x-ray before you know where they actually have pain, it's harder to be so like, to pick up subtle findings. But if you know it's their index finger at their PIP joint that's sore, you're going to focus a lot of your attention at that part of the x-ray. So being focused in terms of how you examine, seeing where they're sore, and moving is also an important one. Just looking to see what their tendon function is like. You know, if someone has a complete tendon laceration, uh, we'll go over this in more detail as we get through it, but a complete tendon laceration, you'll often see there won't be the normal cascade of the hand. If they have a palmar laceration, you know, they're sitting on the table already perhaps with their, with their back of their hand on the table and you can see, and they may not have the normal flow, the normal cascade of their fingers that you should look at. And if one finger is fully extended, then they've injured the, the flexor tendons on that side. When it's something on the extensor side, and there's not a lot of tissue between skin and bone on the dorsum of the hand, like there's a good chance they've cut something, but when it's on the dorsum of the hand, you know, you need to actually lift the hand passively off the table and just see what the tone is like of the hand. And if one finger drops down, you've got to think that they've cut an extensor tendon. So these are the sorts of things that you just need to pay attention to. It doesn't take long to do it, but it's really important. You do a neurovascular assessment for sure. If there is a fracture, you want to know if the skin's over top of it. All of those general orthopedic principles are also there. But I think a lot of this of look, feel, move, and these specialized tests are super important. Yeah, I want to dig in a little bit further to just the look. And you mentioned the cascade of the fingers. Dr. Stefano, could you elaborate on what Dr. Cial means about the cascade of the fingers and abnormalities that we're looking for in the cascade of the fingers? Sure, Anton. And I would pick up on one thing that uh, that Aaron just said, and and that was the importance of looking at the other side. And this is part of the the joy and the ease of doing appendicular MSK medicine because you always have something to compare to, Right. And I am reminded of the engineering maxim, two is one and one is none. And of course, engineers refer to that in terms of redundancy, that they want to build in safety capacity in any system. But for us, when we're doing physical exam, that reminds me to look at the other side always. If I'm just looking at one limb, one hand, 
it's really none. I got to compare to the other side. So two is one and one is none. And that's really important when you're looking at cascade. And in Emerge, when we're busy, uh, we're really looking for tests. And make no mistake about it, a physical exam is a test. And I'll refer the listener to Dave Sackett's excellent series of articles about sensitivity and specificity of physical exam maneuvers. What we're looking for in Emerge is a physical exam test that tells us something reliably. And Cascade is both highly sensitive and specific for a problem. And that's what you want in the Emerge. So one of the few things that I do consistently with all my patients is have them relax both hands, palm up towards the ceiling, and just look at the position of the fingers. Cascade refers to a waterfall of the fingers. The index finger should be relatively extended all the way down to the pinky finger, which should be relatively flexed. So from index to pinky, you have progressively more flexion, and it should look the same on the other hand. So if you have a finger that's out of alignment on that cascade, or you have obvious asymmetry side to side, Houston, you have a problem. And now you can do a more focused physical exam. So it's a great screening tool. In my experience, people with normal cascade, both sides, generally they're not going to have a serious problem in their hand. It really is a bit challenging to visualize how best to perform a hand exam on a podcast, which is why we created a video with Dr. Ciel with a film crew that will be featured at the EM Cases Summit that starts just a few days after this podcast release February 2nd to 4th. So if you want to see the brilliant video of Dr. Ciel going through the hand exam, grab your last minute tickets to the virtual summit. And no worries if you miss the summit, no problem. We offer a digital package of all the main stage talks for a few months after the summit that also includes all past summit videos. It's a treasure trove of goodies. You can grab your digital package at emcasesummit.com. The other thing on observation, uh, and this is a good differential diagnosis to go over that maybe now is a good time to go over, is global hand swelling. So sometimes you'll have a patient that comes in, they've injured the hand, and you ask them where it hurts, and they say, everywhere. And you know, usually when someone says it hurts everywhere, you're thinking, oh boy, this is going to be a challenge. <laughs> but it truly hurts everywhere. And you look at their hand, and their entire hand is swollen. It, it always seems perplexing at first. Well, what could be going on with this patient's hand? Can you just run through for us the quick differential diagnosis of the global swollen hand because th sure. this has to do you know i'm tying this into the physical exam of just observation and when you observe you see a big swollen hand what should you be thinking sure and i would answer that first anton by saying hey real world so i worked in a smaller rural emergency department yesterday and i saw three hand cases and we could tear those three cases apart today and they would illustrate all the principles that we're reviewing one of those hand cases yesterday was global swelling of the wrist and the hand. And I'll talk to you at the end of this discussion about what the diagnosis was, but it's a common presentation to the eMERGE. I think number one is always going back to the history. Is there a mechanism? Was there high energy that went into the hand? And if so, you have a problem. You have a compartment syndrome till proven otherwise. But far more common in the eMERGE is you don't have a good story about mechanism, or if there is a mechanism, it's often a red herring. There wasn't a lot of energy that went into the hand. So now you have to think on your differential about other processes that aren't simply traumatic. And I think that's one of the pitfalls for all MSK medicine, especially with our eMERGE mindset, is we think that all MSK problems are traumatic, but many of them aren't. Right? So you have to think about infection or inflammation and autoimmune disease, always on the differential. And I, I recognize for many of our listeners, those things are challenging because it's oftentimes difficult to make a specific labeling diagnosis during this one visit in the emergency department. So we go back to still having to have that rule out approach. Hey, let's make sure it's not a compartment syndrome, high energy, big mechanism or injection injury. And if it's not that, you've bought yourself some time to think. So now, why does a person have a globally swollen hand? And I love the fact that you brought up ouchitis, you know, people that hurt everywhere. There's no point of maximum tenderness. It's all maximum tenderness. I'm a pretty simple guy. I want to know if they're on blood thinners because they can bleed into a deep space in the hand, and that's tiger country. That's the palm of the hand, and bad stuff lives in there. So number one, always, are they on blood thinners? And then if not, I'm going to go down the infectious, inflammatory, autoimmune pathway. 
there's something there that's causing global swelling. If they have a hand infection and they have global swelling, they have an infection in the deep space in the hand, and that's a surgical emergency. And you'll find that out on physical exam. Patient will be in a lot of pain. They won't be moving their hand that much. And lab work and imaging may be secondarily helpful. Far more common, I think, though, for the working eMERGE doc is something inflammatory or autoimmune. And this is where we're getting to stuff like gout or pseudogout or post-viral inflammation that's really an autoimmune condition. And so I think you have to have those things on the differential and you have to be thoughtful about how you document. My approach is always query. Query inflammatory, query dactylitis, query post-viral synovitis or query post-viral arthritis. And to finish the loop, Anton, I'll tell you the case I saw yesterday was a woman in her 70s that had pseudogout. She had CPPD and she had global wrist and hand swelling. And some of that was from immobility from pain for a couple days. And her exam was generally benign, radiocarpal tenderness, no skin changes, no rash, no redness, no heat, no fever, no trauma history, no energy into the hand. And ultimately an X-ray seeing calcium deposition in her triangular fibrocartilage and her radiocarpal joint was helpful to cinch the diagnosis. Great example. The other one that I've seen once or twice before is reperfusion injury after frostbite. That one can be a tough one because sometimes let's say it's a homeless person and they don't remember falling asleep outside in the middle of winter or you know you can't really get a history from them and they've come in a few days after they've had a cold injury to the hand and it's actually a reperfusion phenomena. Yeah, and those are described with prolonged tourniquet time as well, but you're going to get a good history from that one. The person that has a substance use disorder or has fallen asleep in the snow or outside in the cold is obviously going to be more challenging. And those reperfusion injuries will usually present to the eMERGE like an evolving compartment syndrome. So people will have a generally swollen hand, their soft tissue compartments will be woody and firm, and they'll have crescendo pain. All right. I love that. So the, the differential diagnosis of the globally swollen hand is a good one. I want to continue with the physical exam. Just go over generally just some tricks about the motor exam, sensation, and perfusion. Sure. Depending on where the injury is, you have to, as, as Matt's saying, where if there's a laceration, that's where you think of what could be cut. If it's a if it's a digital nerve, obviously it's a different animal than if it's a, a cut in the wrist or in the forearm or somewhere else. Um, if it's a closed injury, where did that occur? In the big picture, the three main nerves that feed the hand, the radial nerve, the median nerve, and the ulnar nerve. So uh, for upper extremities, generally, if you want to look for sensation from you know, wrist more proximally as a distal neuroassessment, the first dorsal web space is purely radial nerve. The tip of the second finger on the palmar side is purely median nerve. And the tip of the fifth finger on the palmar side is purely ulnar nerve. There's a lot of patient-to-patient -patient variability of nerves, but those three areas are pretty uniform. That's how you can check radio, ulnar, median nerves in terms of uh, sensation. Uh, if it's a digital nerve that's cut, then you need to be more careful with it. You know, the gold standard probably for hand specialists is to do something called two-point discrimination. That's not something that we typically would do in an emergency department. Uh, it also varies patient to patient, so compared to the opposite side. But you could do light touch, you could do pinprick, you could break like a tongue depressor and just use that as a sharp edge and try to check. And compared to the opposite hand, uh, make sure you always touch an area that's of normal sensation so it's easier for the patient to understand. The three digital nerves that are the most important, keep in mind, the ulnar aspect of the fifth finger, of the baby finger, is very important because that's the part that's down on surfaces. You touch something hot with it. That's uh, a very important digital nerve. Uh, and then the two that make the pinch on your thumb and your index finger. So the ulnar side of your thumb and the radial side of your index finger, those digital nerves are particularly important. And just checking sensation would be the way to look for that. Uh, in terms of motor... Again, from higher up on the extremity, thumbs up is radial nerve, peace sign is ulnar, and power of the people just making a grip is one of the ways that you can look for median nerve. But specifically when you get to the hand, the last muscle that's innervated by the ulnar nerve is adductor pollicis. 
And there's something called Froment's sign, F-R-O-M-E-N-T. And normally what you do is if you wanted to take a piece of paper, let's say, or anything and hold it between your index finger and your thumb, your thumb normally would be extended at the IP joint because you have adductor pollicis working. And in Froment's sign, if adductor pollicis is not working, the only way that you can squeeze that space is to use flexor pollicis. And therefore you're flexing, and that's actually not using the ulnar nerve, that's using the median nerve. So therefore, looking for if you have a flexed IP joint to hold that paper between your index and thumb, uh, that's a sign of ulnar nerve dysfunction. All right. So just to review there, the Froment sign, F-R-O-M-E-N-T sign, is the inability to keep the thumb and the index finger straight when they're pinching down on a piece of paper. Right. In Froment sign, you're actually flexing the IP joint of the thumb in order to pinch because you need the flexors of your thumb and your adductor is not functioning to do that. So again, compare to the opposite side, see how the patient does it. But generally what you would want to see is you want to see almost like they're running parallel to each other, but if they have to flex their thumb to do it, that's a sign that they have an inability to use adductor pollicis. Okay, and that would be an ulnar nerve. Ulnar nerve, because that's the adductor. When the ulnar nerve comes around in the arc, it's actually the last muscle that's innervated by the ulnar nerve. Got it. And then lastly, there's assessing the vascular status of the patient. So there's, you know, the usual cap refill. There's the radial pulse. The thing that always comes up is the, the Allen's test. And I can't remember the last time I actually tried to do an Allen's test. First of all, is it useful? If it's useless, we don't need to talk about it. But if it's useful, how do you do it? When would you do it? I don't think I can tell you in the past 20 years when I've done that outside an OSCE situation. So I don't know if it's clinically really relevant. Enough said. Alan's test, not very clinically relevant. I agree. Anything about the vascular status that we need to know about besides the usual cap refill, pulses? I think it's worth mentioning that, and it's a general principles thing, Anton, that the hand has so much redundancy in blood supply. You know, you can run on your ulnar artery or you can run on your radial artery. So you may have seen patients in your career that have a laceration to their radial artery because it's a little bit more superficial than the ulnar artery. It's more poorly protected anatomically. And oftentimes those lacerations aren't actually repaired definitively. And the patient will run on their ulnar artery for the balance of their life. So there is a little bit of wiggle room there for us as clinicians to not panic so much about blood supply to the hand. Certainly the general principles are in play that if you have an ulnar artery laceration or radial artery laceration, you need to get control on that because a patient can bleed to death in front of you. So that's tourniquet and exploration and not overhandling the cut edges of the artery to give our colleagues a chance to repair them. And then trying to tie the artery off and leaving long tails, again, thinking ahead about definitive management for that patient. But I think the take-home message is there's lots of blood supply to the hand. We're very lucky the way we were designed. And to Matt's point, the ulnar artery or radial artery are lacerated. It may require ligation of some sort. But if it's a digital artery in the hand, we would not actually clamp or tie off that in a finger. Compression is really important because a lot of times the, the nerve and neurovascular bundles, they run together. And you sometimes will clamp a nerve at the same time. So we don't clamp these in the finger, but that's strictly for the major arteries of the radial ulnar artery that Matt was mentioning. Yeah, that's a good clarifying point. We've talked about sensation, we've talked about motor, we've talked about perfusion. The last thing I want to talk about is tendon testing. And I always get mixed up the FDS and the FDP and the PFS and the DF, and people talk about it in different ways. It gets very confusing. Are you rapping, Anton? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Run FDS. Is there a simple way of remembering how to test for the tendons of the hand? No, I don't think there's a simple way. I think what it takes is effort, as Matt was talking about before, of being intimately aware of the anatomy. And only once you're aware of the anatomy can you then test appropriately. But if you're not aware of the anatomy, like I can't tell you the number of times, and it's got to be hundreds of times, that I've gone over hand anatomy with house staff in the emergency department. Anytime somebody has a laceration, like the what if game, what if they cut their FDS? What if they cut their FDP? What would it look like? And I don't know if the hundreds of times that I've done this, on one hand, I could count the number of people that were able to tell me how to examine it. And these are residents in training who just don't know because they don't understand the anatomy well enough. And I would say it's probably our fault as teachers that we don't teach them well enough. It's not their fault for not learning. They're bright students, of course. But we, if we don't understand it well enough, we can't even teach it properly. So being intimately aware of the anatomy is super important. 
On the flexor side, there are paired tendons that run that we all remember, I think, FDS and FDP, flexor digitorum superficialis, flexor digitorum profundus. And you just need to really understand these well to understand how to test them. So essentially, superficialis is the more superficial tendon, profundus is the deeper one. They run over top of each other, parallel to the finger on the flexor side. The superficialis splits. I think I heard Matsy like a snake's tongue, like it splits like a little Y just over the PIP joint, and then it inserts at the base of the middle phalanx. So you almost have to draw this out. Imagine a little Y over the PIP joint, and where the FDS inserts is the base of the middle phalanx. That little opening, now when it's split, FDP, which is underneath, comes underneath FDS, and it runs and it inserts on the base of the distal phalanx. So it runs over the DIP. So FDS only goes over PIP, FDP goes over both PIP and DIP. And what we need to appreciate is any tendon runs over a joint, it has function over that joint. So if you want to go and assess for FDP, flexor digitorum profundus, just go hold down the patient's middle phalanx and ask them to flex their DIP. Because the only tendon that goes to the distal phalanx that goes over the DIP is flexor digitorum profundus. So if you want to check for FDP, it's pretty straightforward. Hold down the middle phalanx, have them flex the DIP, and then check. If you want to check FDS, the problem is FDP runs over it as well. And then what you need to do is you need to eliminate FDP, take it out of the picture so that all you're doing is you're isolating FDS. And the reason you can do this is because FDP as a muscle actually works as one muscle belly. And if you then hold out the other fingers, the three of the fingers, then FDP is basically knocked out. But FDS, Fexodotorum superficialis, works as four individual muscles. So this is why you knock out FDP, but you don't knock out FDS. So if you took someone and you wanted to check their middle finger, let's say, if you want to check FDS, you have to hold the index, the ring, and the, the fifth finger, the baby finger, hold them out into extension. You ask the patient then to flex their middle finger, and they won't have any ability to flex the DIP because profundus is eliminated. Because when you eliminate three quarters of profundus, you eliminate the fourth quarter. But they can flex at their PIP because FDS is working. So it's a little challenging. You've got to go through this multiple times. You really have to understand it well. But in order to isolate FDS, you have to eliminate FDP. If you want to examine FDP, just go to the DIP joint. That's a bit of an overview on the flexor side. A couple of caveats for about 15% of people, they have an independent FDP to their index finger. Not all four work together. That's, that's a little caveat. And a small percentage of people, 8 or 10%, don't have FDS to their fifth finger. So there are variations of what anatomy is supposed to be like. I've been burned by that one before. I was like, oh, they've taken out their FDS on their pinky, and I forgot to compare it to the other side, and I didn't realize that plastic surgeon told me that they don't have an FDS on either side, that they were born that way. So that's a good little caveat. One other thing I would just I'll also warn, when, when you're testing these tendons, uh, another important thing, to look at cascade, if the cascade is off, like if it's dropped, you know they got a complete tendon laceration. But if they have a partial tendon laceration, they might still be able to move. If it's 95% cut, it's way easier for someone to repair the edges if the two ends are still connected to each other. But if we right away, the first thing we do, we refund them, do resisted testing with a lot of tension, you can tear the last 5% just by testing too aggressively. So what you need to do is you need to almost grade how you do this. Let them just check their function without any resistance. Then put light resistance, and then if they pass that, then you can quickly move up and put a reasonable amount of resistance against it. But do it in a graded fashion. If you just refund it right away from the beginning, you could potentially snap a partially cut laceration, and then it's much more challenging for the surgeon, much more challenging for the patient, much more problematic in terms of the repair. So it needs to be a little more gradual in how we test it. If they have pain with resisted testing, that's the clinical clue for a potential partial tendon laceration. 
if they also have pain with the resistant testing, it goes back to Matt's previous point. Maybe they got a foreign body in there and that's getting irritated when they're using it. So these are the couple of things that should come to mind if they have pain with the resistant testing. What a great pearl there. I mean, I've always wondered, I'm always worried about potentially snapping a 95% tendon laceration, but just simply doing a graded exam is a great pearl. I want to talk a little bit more about tendon lacerations and the big problem that seems to come up with almost every tendon laceration. I mean, I can't remember the last tendon laceration that's perfectly obvious on first inspection of the patient's laceration. They inevitably crawl up into some deep, dark space somewhere where you just can't see the end of the tendon and you're not sure should the tendon be there. Any tips on how to examine for that tendon that kind of should be there, but you can't see it and trying to find that end and how to overcome that challenge of the hiding tendon? And Anton, that is partially based on the zone of the injury. And so without nerding out and getting into zones on the hand, again, we can Google this kind of stuff. The principle is the more proximal the laceration, and by proximal, I mean the more you're approaching the wrist and the distal forearm, the more likely a tendon's going to get retracted when it's completely cut. And what's the reason? Well, it goes back to anatomy again. The more distal the cut, then the more likely it is that the proximal stump of the tendon is actually attached by little bits of webbing. And some of that webbing is attached to the tendon by virtue of the sheath that's around of it. And some of the webbing is a little bit more macro, if you will. There's junctional tendons on the extensor surface that attach one tendon to another side to side. And that's sort of nature's protection. If you were to lacerate a tendon, you would still be left with some degree of function. And those junctional tendons would help keep the cut ends of the tendon relatively close, such that there would be some potential that you would scar and heal. So take home message, the more distal, you're really not likely to have a lot of retraction. The more proximal, that's where you need to worry. Now you asked, practically speaking, how can I go fetch? And the tool and choice is having a straight set of mosquitoes. And you need to, A, know the anatomy, B, have good light and exposure and a helper, someone that can retract, and then you go fishing. You go fishing proximally almost always, that's the retracted side, because that's on the muscular side. And you go fishing with straight mosquitoes, and you go down the hole and try and find the end of the tendon. Uh, and guess what? There's no magic to this. That's what happens in the operating room. So you might as well try in the emergency department. And even if you may not be the person fixing this, if you can go find the tendon, grab the end gently, pull it out and tag it with a suture, it makes life much easier for everyone in the operating room. A couple of tips. If you want to take some really simple pieces of equipment to work with you, just buy one of those little headlamps at like a dollar store and you'll have great lighting. You can actually just buy some like mag glasses, like whatever readers that just, even if you have good eyesight, just having a little, they're like, like really cheap loops, right? Like I don't need glasses even at my age, but I still put those on sometimes when I'm sewing and it just magnifies everything. It makes it easier. And if you're by yourself and you don't have somebody else to help you retract, once the finger's frozen, you can just put a couple of tacking stitches above and beyond, and you can use them as little retractors that just give you space to look down into a field as well. So having good view is really important. And having the loops, having a headlamp, and having little tacking stitches makes it easier for you to see all this. I can just hear the Pocus Keeners saying, oh, why don't you just throw a point of care ultrasound on there and you can see the tendon. What's your opinion on the role of Pocus for finding tendons? So I think always it's operator dependent. So how skilled is the person holding the ultrasound probe? Uh, and if you're asking about me, the answer is not very. But I think if it's in your bag of tricks and you're comfortable with it and you use a high frequency probe over the forearm and the wrist, you can use gel. But if you're using a high frequency probe on the hand, a nice trick is to put it in a bucket of water and you'll see a little bit better that way. Don't sell short the physical exam. That if you sit there and somebody think has a Jersey finger, if you, if you palpate and they're actually tender over the middle aspect of their, let's say, proximal phalanx, that's the stump you're probably feeling. That's how far back it's retracted. Uh, so you can actually palpate along and sometimes feel where the stump end is. So don't give that up as an option as well. I wouldn't hang my hat on it necessarily, but it is somewhat predictive. I want to talk a little bit more about compartments. And we're still on the broader topic of physical exam, and it just shows how important the physical exam is for hand injuries. 
But my understanding is that there's 10 compartments in the hand. We already talked a little bit about global hand swelling. And the first thing you should think about is compartment syndrome with global hand swelling. But it's not always going to be global hand swelling that you get compartment syndrome in. Can you just tell us a little bit about how to approach the physical exam when it comes to the compartments and testing to see whether there may be a compartment syndrome? Sure. So you got to know where the compartments are. You know, you can Googleize this stuff again. Seven of the 10 muscular compartments, and I'm being picky about saying muscular or fascial compartments, because Anton, you mentioned 10. There are 10 muscular compartments in the hand, but there's really an extra one we should think about. So seven out of the 10 muscular compartments are interossei. You have four dorsal and three volar. And those muscles are small, and we know they live between the metacarpals. And so you can literally, with pincer, with your index finger and thumb or your long finger and thumb, dorsal and volar on the hand, you can pincer your fingertips between the metacarpals and palpate those interossei. You're looking to see if the hand is swollen, but the other thing you're doing is actually finding the space between the metacarpals and just giving each one a little pinch between two and three, between three and four, between four and five. I'll tell you, short of multiple metacarpal fractures or a big sustained high energy crush injury, compartment syndrome of the interossei is rare. Where you should be cued to it is an x-ray where someone has multiple mid-shaft metacarpal fractures. They are highly likely to have a compartment syndrome of the hand that involves the interossei. Where we should probably spend more time as eMERGE docs is evaluating the thenar compartment, the hypothenar compartment, and the thumb adductor compartment, because those are bigger muscles, bigger compartments, more superficial, and more likely to get injured in high energy mechanisms. So those are the three compartments we should really be examining consistently. Again, thenar, thumb adductor, and hypothenar. And then that last compartment I talked about, it's not a fascial compartment, it's not a muscular compartment, it's the carpal tunnel, and that's a closed space. So I always think 10 plus one, 10 muscular compartments and then the carpal tunnel. And you may think, oh, how's the carpal tunnel going to get full of something? How's it going to get a compartment syndrome? Well, the most common reason for a compartment syndrome in the carpal tunnel, so an acute carpal tunnel syndrome, if you like, is a distal radius fracture. A distal radius fracture, particularly one that's comminuted, is going to bleed a lot. And that blood's going to fill the carpal tunnel. I don't think a lot of eMERGE docs know that 10 to 15% of distal radius fractures are complicated by a carpal tunnel syndrome of some degree. So if you think you haven't seen this problem, I can tell you, you have. You just haven't recognized it. All right. That's some amazing stuff about the compartments of the hand that I have to admit, I don't think about too often. But just to review there, I guess the simple way of doing it is press on the thenar eminence. It should be nice and soft. If it's not, maybe you should worry about compartment syndrome there. Press on the hypothenar eminence. Again, if it's not soft, maybe compartment syndrome there. First web space should be nice and soft. And then the interosseous muscles, use your pincer grasp, put your thumb in their palm and your index finger where the metacarpals are and just go in between the metacarpals and feel if they're full and rock solid because that would be worrisome for compartment syndrome. You got it. And remember two is one and one is none. So compare to the other hand. And then there's the general hand swelling where they can have compartment syndrome in multiple compartments, I assume. And the one thing that I've read about, they call the intrinsic minus position. So I want to just go back a little bit to just general observation. Looking at the hand when it comes to compartment syndrome is if you see a hand in intrinsic minus position, then you should be worried about compartment syndrome. So can you just review for us what intrinsic minus position is and why the patient would be in intrinsic minus with a compartment syndrome? Sure. You know, in common parlance, intrinsic minus is a claw hand. So it looks like someone with a claw. And I think for most of us during our training, we would think about someone that's had an ischemic contracture of the forearm, like a Volkman's contracture, or if I'm going to be nerdy and shout out to South America, Finichetto's contracture. Finichetto described the same thing as Volkman, but because we're Eurocentric in our training, we forget about South America. So a contracture a compartment syndrome in the forearm that's not caught, that leads to death of muscle and or nerve, can give you a claw hand. And that's an intrinsic minus hand. 
Maybe, Anton, the easy thing is just to review what intrinsic plus is. And indeed, what we're talking about with the labeling, intrinsic means that your intrinsic muscles are working, one in particular, and that's the lumbricals. And to remember your anatomy and function, the lumbricals independently flex the MCPs. The lumbricals independently flex the MCP. So if you're listening, hold your wrist in extension and just try and actively isolate flexing your MCPs only. And you should feel some effort in the palm of your hand. That's because you're firing your lumbricals. Okay, so if the lumbricals work, that means the intrinsics are working, intrinsic plus. So that position of immobilizing the hand with the MCPs in flexion, that's why we call it intrinsic plus. It's a nod to the lumbricals. Intrinsic minus, therefore, means that you don't have MCP flexion. In fact, you have the MCPs in neutral or slightly extended because the lumbricals aren't working. So an intrinsic minus hand is MCPs in variable degrees of extension and your IPs in flexion. So it looks like a claw. Brilliant explanation. Great. We'll have some visuals on the show notes for that as well. I want to move on to something that we've touched on a little bit, and that is stopping bleeding. So sometimes we'll have patients with a hand injury and they are bleeding like crazy. And there's all different kinds of ways of stopping the bleeding. You know, there's just simple stuff like putting pressure on the bleed and keeping their hand elevated above their heart. Any other tips about stopping the bleeding hand? There could be bleeding from a fingertip, a fingertip avulsion, or a fingertip amputation. There could be bleeding from a laceration that goes through an artery. Any tips on stopping bleeding? You know, I think going back to MASH, like a tourniquet is a really useful thing. Where do you have to put the tourniquet? Just above wherever the injury is. So if it's a forearm laceration, just put up a blood pressure cuff and blow it up and leave that sitting for a bit. And that can give you some time. If it's in the palm, then you put a cuff of some sort of tourniquet of some in the forearm. And if it's in a finger, you can either just use a Penrose drain, you can use a glove tourniquet, you can do something just to create a tourniquet at the base of the finger. So whatever the most distal area you could go to get control of the bleeding, that's essentially what you would be doing. Compression, I still remember, I think it was almost my second day of internship at North York General and one of the plastic surgeons actually saying pressure, pressure, pressure. Those are the three most important things to stop bleeding, pressure, pressure, and pressure. So just compression is really important to do that and give it some time. And as we alluded to earlier, if you ever see anything on the finger in a finger that's bleeding in a digit, don't clamp the artery. Don't go and try to clamp it to close it because you're going to probably pinch a nerve that's running parallel to it. And we might get to this a bit later, but that bleeding tip of finger from a skin avulsion, these can sometimes be difficult to stop. You know, I've seen people use TXA soaked gauze, Surgicel, all kinds of different things. From your practical experience, Dr. DeSefano, what's the best way to stop bleeding at the tip of a finger? The initial bleeding, yeah, we can put a tourniquet on, we can do pressure, but then as soon as you take the tourniquet off, it starts bleeding again, or as soon as you take the pressure off, it starts bleeding. How do you kind of definitively stop the bleeding of a fingertip? Well, Anton, I think we should look at true experts for that. And true experts for bleeding fingertips are tradespeople. And what do tradespeople have in their toolboxes at all times? Because they know this problem. They have elastic bands and crazy glue. And really, that's what we can do in the emergency department. So you need a finger tourniquet. And like Aaron was saying, the most distal segment that you need to put the tourniquet on. And remember, because of the vascularity of the hand, the redundancy, the phenomenal blood supply, the hand can handle an insult for a long time. So you don't have to worry about starting the stopwatch for tourniquet time on treating a finger. You can leave a rubber band on for 30, 45, 60 minutes, no problem. And just as a caveat though, at Janice General, I've heard a story of a child who went in the emergency department had a Penrose tourniquet placed, finger was looked after, patient left with Penrose on, child lost the finger. So do remember if you put it on, sure, you have 30, 45 minutes, maybe longer, whatever, but it needs to come off. It's super important. For sure. So once you put a tourniquet on there, I ask the patient to now do the work, same as the tradesperson's going to do, and that is they need to exsanguinate their own finger. They're going to be kinder and gentler to themselves than me. So the tourniquet goes on, and then they just, from proximal to distal, squeeze the blood out of the finger, squeeze the blood out of the laceration, give them a stack of gauze, they can dab things dry. And then once the finger is dry and white, then it's time to put your glue on. 
And tradespeople will use crazy glue and will use skin glue. And the only meaningful difference is, is that the temperature at which it cures is a little bit lower than medical glue. So it's less likely to burn the tissues. I've heard of that before using skin glue to tips of fingers. And I have to say, it sounds fine initially in the eMERGE, but then what happens in follow-up? I mean, typically for a laceration, it's supposed to fall off in five to seven days and everything's fine. But are there any studies that actually look at the outcomes of putting glue on skin avulsions? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not aware of any. Probably how the glue is working to some degree is it's cauterizing the very small vessels as it cures. The, the other thing that I've heard from one of the plastic surgeons is that when you have a, a, an evulsion of a tip, it's like a scything laceration of an artery or the and it's not actually cut like longitudinally where it just can clamp down very easily. So if one had a, a, a vertical cut that was going down into the finger, then you know it, it shuts itself down just because there's vasospasm in the in the end of the arteriole, um, which allows it to close. But if it's more of a scything cut, imagine it sort of being on an angle, like on an oblique angle, uh, then what ends up happening is it actually can't shut down and stop as much. So the tourniquet and then stopping the bleeding, I think if you just stem the bleeding at one point, then it will clot in behind it. And I think it'll probably last for a couple hours. So I've heard plastic surgeons also say about using, uh, about using Dermabond or using tissue glue as necessary, uh, but I don't know any evidence behind it. Yeah. All I can tell you is empiricism, which is with experience, it's a nice way to manage them. I do, though, Anton, I put a dressing on all these people. All right. So that's a little bit about stopping bleeding. The other question that always comes up is analgesia. So how to take away the pain from a patient who's had a hand injury. There's forearm blocks. There is injecting lidocaine. I see plastic surgeons using epinephrine a lot in the fingers, where the traditional teaching is we shouldn't use epinephrine in the fingers, or at least not in the fingertips. There's procedural sedation. There's all kinds of options in terms of how to minimize pain for patients with hand injuries. Any tips, tricks, pearls about analgesia for hand injuries? Sure. I think like anything we do procedurally in medicine, do what you're good at. And so if you're going to do a field block or a regional block or a beer block, I'm just listing those things off the top of my head. And I would tell you, I haven't done a beer block on a patient for almost 20 years. So that's not going to be in my bag of tricks. But I see it done and it's a totally reasonable approach, especially with really complex lacerations where you're not going to get a good field block or you may have to do a regional block that includes all three nerves. So when you get into that kind of work, a beer block makes sense. So I think option number one is do what you're good at. And then number two, just things to think about is total dosing of your anesthetic, especially in smaller people, children, elderly, little old ladies, local metabolism, systemic metabolism. With complex hand injuries, especially with serial blocks, if that patient's being investigated, procedure, x-ray, and you're topping up your blocks, you can get pretty close to a total safe dose. So I think that's one thing to always keep in mind. And then number two is anatomy again. I think if you're going to do good blocks, nerve blocks in the hand, you have to know where they are. And so we're going to go back to know your anatomy cold. That's the foundation for doing this work. If you ask me my personal preference, Anton, I double block almost everybody. So I do some proximal block and some distal block. So for example, someone has a dorsal finger laceration, and I know I may want to extend it or look inside carefully to make sure they don't have a tendon injury. I'm going to do a proximal block in the hand that may be a field block, which is a fancy way of saying, I'm just going to shoot some xylocaine in, in line with that finger and let diffusion win over precision. And then I may do a ring block as well. So why am I doing that? Five to 10% of people are rapid metabolizers. And so a single block may not work well for them. The hand is, as everyone knows, really sensitive. And so I don't want people to have pain. So I'm going to err on the side of a double block most of the time. If I have a more proximal injury to the hand, then I'll do a nerve block at the wrist, radial nerve, median nerve, ulnar nerve, or some combination thereof, and then do something more distal, either a regional or field block around the injury or a digital nerve block. I actually don't do nerve blocks around the wrist. So just to, if people don't feel comfortable doing it, I think, Matt, your point about do what you're good at, I don't do them. So just to let the listeners know that there are some that can manage these without as well. But if you're good at them, by all means, go ahead. 
When you're doing a digital block, it took me a while to convert, but a single Palmer digital block that Matt talks about here is really useful and, and again, can work most of the time and sometimes it needs to be supplemented. I initially heard about it and I thought it was you know a painful thing to inject on the Palmer side of the hand. That would be less painful on the dorsal, but to do a dorsal ring block of a finger, it's two, sometimes three pokes. And a single Palmer digital block is a single poke, and it's way more comfortable for patients. I suspect in the show notes, you could show where the landmark would be. It's midline on the finger, second to fifth finger, and just proximal to the digital crease. The proximal digital crease is where you would inject. A couple of other things as well. Small gauge needle certainly helps when you're injecting these. If you think the pain's going to last for a while, by all means, you can either mix it 50-50 with bupivacaine, or you can just give a pure bupivacaine, a long-acting block, and that can also be done. And uh, I think we've talked with the format about cutting it with bicarb, yep. uh, about mixing it sort of 90% local and 10% bicarb. Also takes away some of the sting of it. You can't store it that way because then it becomes alkali. It has a much less of a storage a shelf life for it, but you can certainly cut your local with bicarb and that'll make the injection less painful. Amazing. We've just hit on so many pearls. That's, I'm going to have to review this all to remember them all. <laughs> That's great. So let's say we've stopped the bleeding. We've provided good analgesia and now we're ready to enter the treatment phase of these patients. I mean, I guess we've treated their pain and We've treated the bleeding, but in terms of actually definitively fixing whatever problem they came in with, I want to talk about just some general principles of treating. You know, we have to think about mobility. We have to think about sensation. We have to think about length of fingers if they've got an amputation. What are some general principles in terms of treating hand injuries? Principles of of what to do are sometimes guided by what doesn't get done well. And one of the things, I read this in a, in a hand chapter of an orthopedic book, and essentially, you know, if we misdiagnose something, patients get deformity. If we misimmobilize people or mismanage them, they get stiffness. If we really mess up, they get deformity and stiffness. And deformity and stiffness are enemies of the hand. So it's really important to be accurate in our diagnosis. It's really important to try to be more precise in our immobilization strategies as we manage these. What often gets missed in terms of deformity is actually rotation. And rotation is a clinical assessment done with the MCPs and the PIPs inflection, again, compared to the opposite side. But that's an important thing to look for. Again, compared to the opposite side, maybe one in six people, your fifth finger scissors under your fourth. But if there's a rotational abnormality and we don't correct it, that's a lifelong deformity for that patient. It will not correct on its own. It's often there and it's often missed. When we immobilize a hand, the principle of immobilizing the hand is the MCP should be in relative flexion and the IP should be in relative extension. Not strictly 90 degrees and and 180 at MCP and IPs respectively, but relative flexion and relative extension. And what this does is this allows the soft tissues to be at maximum length. This is called the position of safe immobilization, POSI, P-O-S-I is the acronym for it. If we memorize it, we're more likely to err in how we manage patients. And what the issue being is, is that we want the soft tissues out to maximum length. If they're immobilized in maximum length, they can then relax to give range of motion. But if we leave them immobilized in a position where there's some slack in the soft tissues, it'll contract over time. And if it contracts, that leads to stiffness. So it's very important when we mobilize MCPs almost always. MCP should be immobilized in flexion and IP should be immobilized in extension. And that little sort of clay shovelers or that little snake head or however you want to look at it, like a little cobra hand, however you want to look at it, you should look at your hand, put your wrists in extension, MCPs in relative flexion, IPs in extension, and that's the position you want to immobilize a hand in. So these are really important principles from just a positioning point of view. So let's just talk about some more general approaches or general principles to have in your head when you're dealing with hand injuries. And so often what we see in the emerger are lacerations and often fingertip amputations, right? So I always keep four things in mind when I'm looking at someone's hand and I'm thinking, okay, length, number one, durability, number two, sensation, number three, and then function. And what do I mean by function in my head? I mean range of motion. Because those four things are, that's really what the finger does, what the hand does. It's a way for us to experience the world, to sense the world, to work, to touch, to feel. And I think it's only when you've had a significant injury to your hand, 
or you spend time with a patient that's had one that you realize how much can be lost even when you impact just one of those things that I listed. So when I treat a hand or I treat a finger, I'm trying to maintain at least three out of four of those things when I'm making clinical decisions. And once a patient's lost two out of four of those things, you're getting close to a finger that's not going to work very well for the rest of their life. In this case, Anton, we're not even talking about anatomy. I'm not naming a bone or a tendon, but I'm talking about the bigger picture, 50,000 foot stuff about what makes a hand work. You talked about length, sensation, durability, and range of motion. So could you just elaborate on those, what you mean? Sure. So length is a pretty self-explanatory one, but it comes into decision-making about amputations. And this may be something that your listeners are comfortable doing. They're compelled to do by virtue of being rural and remote, low resource environment. Maybe you don't have hand surgeons handy, and you're going to be the definitive person managing this amputation. If you can, try and leave the amputation as long as possible. There's sometimes a push to shorten bone, to shorten a finger, to bring an amputation back down to the next proximal joint. And I think everyone dealing with amputations would say, pause on that. There's lots of time because of the vascularity of the hand. If in doubt, if you're not sure, just bundle the finger up, bring them back, see them a few days later, let the thing declare itself, what's viable, what's not, and then make length decisions at that point in time. But I think your caveat should be, your baseline should be, keep as much length as possible. Two, sensation. A fingertip that looks nice, is out to length, and is covered in durable skin doesn't work very well if you can't feel anything. So I think we have to be conscious of the potential for nerve injuries more proximally in the finger or hand with any and all lacerations. And our job may not be to fix a nerve laceration, but it may be to appreciate that one is present. And so that comes back to physical exam like Aaron was talking about. Specifically, before you put local anesthetic in a patient that has a laceration anywhere in the hand, make sure you check both the radial and ulnar surface of the fingertip to let you and the patient know that the nerve running down each side of the finger is intact. It's in continuity. I mentioned durability, and that's really talking about the quality of skin that the finger has. We all know from looking at the dorsum of our hand that the skin there is really thin, and the volar surface of the hand, the skin is thicker. And that's the working side of the hand, right? The volar surface of the hand. So when it comes to treating wounds or lacerations on the working side of the hand, the volar side of the hand, you want the tissue that's going to heal to be durable. And that's really something that I'm commenting around skin grafts. And some of your listeners who may be working in rural and remote environments may be doing skin grafting. And I would tell you, certainly the literature and my personal practice would be to default to letting the working side of the hand, the volar side of the hand, let it heal by secondary intention because nature will take care of replacing that defect with durable skin. If you're tempted to graft a volar defect, just stop and ask yourself, how big is that defect? If it's the size of a dime or smaller, you can, with great confidence, leave it alone. It'll heal. If it gets to the size of a nickel or a quarter, you may want to involve specialty care, but even many of those will heal fine. Just pause before you start thinking about grafting those defects because you're going to create skin there that's not particularly durable. So we've talked about length, we've talked about sensation, we've talked about durability, and I'm leaving maybe the most important one for emergency physicians last, and that's preserving range of motion. And where we hurt people is by splinting them. It's generally not their injury that's going to hurt them. It's us with good intention trying to help them splinting them in the wrong position and or splinting them for too long. So one of my favorite reminder phrases is splint judiciously and splint like a minimalist. What do I mean by judicious? Think carefully about the injury you're treating. Do they really need a splint? And if in doubt you're going to be conservative and splint them, then be a minimalist. Make sure they're seen within single digit days. Don't let that person leave the department without a plan to take that splint off because like Aaron was talking about, the enemy of the hand is deformity and stiffness. And if we cause the stiffness, that's a problem for the patient. 
All right. Yeah. There's a few things there. One is to splint them in the proper position, which Dr. Seal beautifully described, and we'll have pictures in the show notes. The other one is to splint for not too long. So less than a week, generally. We don't want to keep patients splinted for much longer than that. The other thing that I've come across as one of the pitfalls is not splinting proximally enough. And so we got to remember, again, it comes back to the anatomy. If the tendons are running all the way from the elbow, so sometimes you need to splint as proximal as the entire forearm. Sure. So let's talk about a concrete example. If you are repairing a partial or complete extensor tendon laceration, that patient should leave the emergency department in a splint that goes from fingertip to elbow. Great. Well, I think we've probably given so many pearls and pitfalls so far in this two-part podcast that I think we're going to have to stop there and save the dozens of other pearls and pitfalls and tips and tricks for part two, where we're going to talk about specific injuries, specific injuries that are easy to miss, specific injuries that are common that we tend to mismanage sometimes. And we'll just go through a quick list in part two. So thank you very much, both of you gentlemen, for your expertise and our general approach to hand emergencies. Thanks, Anton. Thanks, Anton. Thanks, Anton.